Hello, welcome to On The Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for more than a decade. So each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their life. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Diana Moran. Model and journalist Diana is best known as the Green Goddess, so-called because she hosted the exercise segment at BBC One's Breakfast Time in the 1980s while wearing her trademark green leotard. She's since gone on to release many exercise videos and books about fitness. Diana lives in West London and her four grown-up grandchildren affectionately call her Granny Goddess. Well, Diana Moran, welcome to the Marie Curie Couch. I'm delighted to be with you, Jason. How are you? I am very well in myself. Mm. But the very strange thing is that half an hour ago, my sister-in-law sent me a message to say that my brother, who I adore, he is three years older than myself, Mm -hmm. is now in hospital and they've just had to put him on oxygen. He's definitely not very well. Well, the medics work out the drugs that are going to hopefully help him. Oh, Diana, so, I'm sorry to hear that. Yes, it is extraordinary how um, I was thinking I was just going to be talking to you in general terms mm-hmm. and how incredibly personal this is now for me this afternoon. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's take it easy in Indeed. the conversation. As as I think you know, um, you know the one of the main aims of this podcast for us as a charity is to encourage conversations about death and dying. Because one of the things we know is, if people are more prepared and have an opportunity to talk about what they want at the end of life and what their wishes are, then outcomes can be improved. And I just wanted to begin today, Diana, by asking if you could share with me a significant experience of bereavement you've had in your life. I've had a very significant bereavement. I was a teenager, a happy-go-lucky teenager with an elder brother. And I came home from school one day to find my mother in the last stages of her life. And she died in the bathroom where I found her. And it was a total, total surprise, shock to me. I therefore ran to neighbours and ambulances came. And then I had the insidious task of ringing my father at his place of work to tell him that mummy had died. And um, we were subsequently to find out that she died from a cerebral hemorrhage. She'd been totally 
okay when she said goodbye to me in the morning. We were a happy family with a very strict father. And life became very different after that day. So a shocking death. A shocking death. Mm -hmm. And the sadness of it was that I already had sharing my bedroom a girl cousin who had come home from college two years previously to find her mother dying in the bathroom. Her mother was my mother's sister. She was sharing our house and we were the umbrella to two other cousins. The father had died at 32, the mother at 39, and that was all for four brothers and sisters. And so I've had a lot of experience of very dramatic and unhappy happenings mm. as a young girl. Mm. Diana, can you, can you talk a bit about what those days and weeks after your mother's death were like for you? Well, I can because my father, I had just alluded to you that my father was very strict, mm. a Victorian type of gentleman who didn't show emotions. I know he loved us, but he didn't show emotions like modern fathers will today. And having told him that my mother was now, she had been taken to a hospital in Bristol, which is where we lived. He must, I'm assuming, have gone to the hospital we as a family went on to bed and at midnight our bedroom light was switched on and my father said your mother will not be coming home and that was the end of the conversation and we were never able to talk about my mother because my father said we keep these emotions to ourselves well, of course, this was terribly wrong for us. And at least we as children could talk to one another. But we couldn't touch anything of mummy's. She was 47. And it was only many years later when my father was 69. And he himself was dying. He was in a hospital in Bath. And I was able to go for two or three days visiting him, talking to him. And do you know, in those few days, I talked to my father probably more than I had ever been able to openly talk to my father before. And he openly was able to talk to me. And it was just such a shame that his upbringing had been such that he could not show emotions. And it's probably the reason why all of us as a family show our emotions a lot these days. Right. Mm. Because you have just said how important it is to talk about death, mm -hmm. either previously or if it does happen so dramatically as did with my mother. Mm -hmm. I've just started this conversation by saying that I've just heard my brother is unwell. As soon as you and I have finished our conversation, 
I shall be talking with my sister-in-law, who's down in the West Country now. And it's so important that we talk to our friends and our families, not only about all the happy things that are going on in life, but these other serious issues. Just going back to um, those sort of, I suppose, weeks and months after your mum died. And, you know, I can hear that your father just could not go there, didn't want to talk about it, didn't want you to touch anything that belonged to your mum. I'm just thinking about your experience of grief and actually where you get your support from through that time. And I can, you know, you were saying that as children, you could talk to each other, but was there anybody else around, like another family member, a neighbour, a school teacher? I was very religious in those days. Okay. Um, I was uh, a member of a Methodist church. I was training to be um, a Sunday school teacher. Sundays for me was a really, really important day. I would be holding the flag for the girl guides and the brownies as in the middle of you know the service. I would go to the youth club afterwards. Now, I have to tell you, the Methodist church were amazing. They were hands-on supporting me. I've never liked cooking. My mother did all the cooking. I'm not somebody who naturally, there were women coming in from the church to help me with cooking. There were All people, practical things. It, was, it was extraordinary. They were wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And then there was an aunt, she wasn't related to us. She was just somebody that I used to call auntie and she was Northern. I didn't know anything about Northern and Southern in those days because I lived in the West Country. And this lady, she wasn't afraid to say anything to me or help. She would just, come on, dear, we do this, we do the other. Yes, I had incredible support from the women in the church and from this auntie. And very much needed support as well, Diana, because, you know, I was just thinking about, you know, I I use the word shocking when you describe the detail around your mum's death, but um, also um, incredibly traumatic, I guess, as well, because you were the one who was there and who found her. And then you had to make that phone call to your dad and all of those things, you know, young, young people aren't expected to be doing those things in their lives, are they? It was totally Shocking. I wanted to ask how the death of your mother had shaped and how do you think it shaped and influenced your life? Oh, it totally influenced it. Mm. Until that moment, I was a happy-go-lucky little West Country girl who took all things for granted. We only had a, we only led an ordinary sort of life, but we were all of us happy. Uh, didn't think seriously too much about the future or anything like that. Life changed totally overnight. I became the little housewife. I became the cook. Um, I had responsibility for so much, I can't tell you. Um, My father continued to be this very, very dictatorial, strict man. Boy, when I look back at what my dad had had to cope with, all the emotion coming from us, the children, 
and my dad just continued in his very dictatorial, controlled way. Well, we weren't. It changed us. And it's made me, as I told you, lying in that hospital bed, it's made me appreciate every day that I have. What's your mum's name? Maisie. Maisie. And until very recently, I have had, walking around my feet, the most gorgeous little black, she was dark haired, little black cat called Maisie. <laughs> That's so nice. She is so, she is so still with all of us. Mm. Maisie is around us all the time. Mm. Because that's a big thing as well, isn't it? You know, kind of as 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 you as you as your life evolves, you get married, you have children, um, you know. But your mum isn't isn't physically present for those things. Then, you know, it's important, isn't it, to continue to keep her close to you and to keep her memory alive by sharing stories of her, I guess, with your children, your grandchildren, um, you know, photographs of her memories. Um, you know, they, they, they stay forever. They certainly do. If you could see my house, it has so many photographs in it. It's unbelievable. Many of them obviously are of uh, my mother and my father and my brother and then the cousins who came to live with us as well. So I've got the younger family, of course, but those, my past family are there and I often talk to them. Mm. Mm. Does that give you comfort talking to them? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. Um, and some people will, certainly in, in our work, in, in, um, you know, I'll, I'll often hear people saying, um, well, I want to talk to him but I'm scared that maybe it, it means I'm going mad or I'm definitely not. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's what we say, you know, it's kind mm -hmm. of, you know, you know, you can keep those conversations going if it helps you and it supports you and, and gives you comfort. Talking and preparing can make life better at the end. Find more inspiration, support and tools, including our conversation cards to get you thinking and talking about the end of life at mariecurie.org.uk forward slash talkabout. What, if any, impact has all this had on thoughts about your own mortality? I got to 47 and the boys had grown and flown. One was in the Royal Navy, the other was away at university. And I had a mammogram, aged 47, and I was working and living in London by then. And on that mammogram, I was found to have breast cancer in both of my breasts. Aged 47, the same as my same mother's age. So I thought, oh my goodness, here we go. So I was referred to the Royal Marsden Hospital, and I'll cut this part of the story very short. And I had major surgery, major mm. surgery, both breasts removed and other things. Mm. I remember um, a Caribbean nurse spoke to me as she put me basically to sleep that night before, and we prayed together. She shared my problem. I had kept it a secret. I hadn't told anybody. 
And then in the morning, she was still there. She was just going off of duty and she prayed with me again. I then had a seven, I think, seven hour operation. And when I came round, I could not believe that I was still here. And I thanked my God for saving me. And I made a pact with my God that I'd never waste another day of my life. And I'd like to think that I haven't wasted too many days. It put me immediately into all of the charity work that I've done in my, my life. And I'm somebody, I think I'm fairly easy to speak to. And because I had this personnel and welfare officer background originally, before all the silly green goddess nonsense, I love talking with people quietly and I feel for other people. When you got your diagnosis of breast cancer when you were 47 year old, and that was, as you say, was the same age um, your mum was when she died and you thought to yourself, this is it. And, and I know you, you said you hadn't told anyone, but were there any conversations around, um, you know, what might happen with, with anybody or did you literally tell no one? I told nobody. Okay. Obviously, the medical people talked to me. And, mm. you know, it's extraordinary. That many years ago, there was nothing written about cancer, breast cancer in particular. Nothing. I, I searched high and low to find a book or two, to find a reference all about it. There was nothing. People, it, it was the big C. And people, you know, spoke about it behind their hands, the big yeah. And so when I was in hospital and afterwards, because I wasn't talking to anybody, I kept a very detailed diary. And when eventually I was well enough and I was back on air, people just thought I'd had a, a, a six week break. Somebody I knew, who knew Harold Evans, who was the uh, editor of The Times, okay. and, and he realized that I'd written a diary and he said that diary should be published and within about nine months it was published it was called a more difficult exercise because I'm an exercise lady yeah. and it sold through it, it was launched in the theater of the Royal Marsden Hospital and the surgeon said Diana well done you've lifted the lid off the can of worms people are now going to be talking about it and um this book i'm very proud of it was my diary and then of course my thoughts and my comments alongside everything that was happening to me and that was my way of talking to people at that stage since then of course i've talked openly and actually, you know, it was your way of sharing your story, but also what you were doing were you, you were you were creating the information that you couldn't access when you were experiencing that yourself. Because, you know, as you say, the big C, people couldn't say the word cancer. They'd put their hands over their mouths. They'd whisper it. It was it wasn't just hidden. It was hidden deeply. And there was so much fear around it. So I guess for, you know, all those women who were experiencing 
breast cancer when your book came out, for them to be able to have access to the information and just something around shared experience, isn't it? It's kind of, oh, I'm not on my own. I'm not alone in the world with this because they're very isolating, lonely experiences. Very isolating. And since then, I'm very proud that I did do that. I was embarrassed at the time because people immediately came up to me wherever I was on a plane on a bus walking down the street people would stop me because I was very high profile at the time and still people refer to it and say is the book still available but isn't it a funny thing I think that um, life has a, a, a strange way about it what is it the Arab saying says he who has health has hope and he who has hope has everything. Now, at that time, um, my family were, uh, the two sons were getting married. And as soon as this one son knew what had gone on, he and his wife came up and said, Mom, we've got something to tell you that will give you a focus for your future. We're going to have a baby. And that was the first of my grandchildren. And I said, you bet I'm going to stay alive and see her grow up. Well, she, Charlotte, has grown up and she's now 28. Uh, she has a sister who is 26, Jessica. I'll come back to her. And another one, Lucy, age 24, and a chap. Now, the three girls all work for the NHS. They all have grandma's Vigor for life is the best way to put it. Um, we get on like sisters all together. And this week, I've just told you there's something sad going on with my brother. But two days ago, granddaughter number two phoned me and said, they call me Gigi, granny goddess, Gigi. And she said, Gigi, I've got something to tell you. She said, Dan has just proposed to me and I could ah. hear him chortling in the background and I said oh that's given me something else to live for I've got to wait for your wedding now and isn't it extraordinary how life does this yeah that's wonderful that's really lovely I, I um I can hear that your faith has been something that's given you strength at those times when you've needed it and I'm sure at other times and also that hope is also something that has helped you I'm just I just wanted to talk a bit more about bereavement and grief and the experience of that Diana because people listening to this podcast might be caring for somebody, a significant person who's dying or who's terminally ill, or they might be grieving the loss of somebody um, who, who's been significant to them. And um, so your faith and hope have been things that have helped you in those times. What other things have helped you manage, cope and deal with grief and bereavement? Quite definitely talking. Mm. I mean, aren't we lucky with organisations like yourself these days? And some of those other charities that I've worked quite a lot for in the mm. last 40 years, um, there's always somebody on the end of the phone these days who can help you with some of these terrible problems that sometimes you can't feel that you want to bother your own loved ones with. But how important it is to talk, because in talking, 
you yourself, it's a cathartic thing, and you can give yourself the answers very often as you talk to somebody about it. And it doesn't always have to be somebody who's very near and dear to you. Sometimes talking to a stranger is easier. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it's sometimes easier talking to a stranger? I think it's because when we talk to our own family and our loved ones, coming into our mind as we're talking, oh, I don't want to bother my family. I don't want to bother my my friends. I don't want to upset my family. I don't want to upset my friends. And therefore talking to somebody, and and somebody who won't be judgmental either, Mm. um, can sometimes be the answer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the need to naturally protect, you know, with family members. So, you know, how open can we really be, as you're describing, you know, when we've got that other voice in our head saying, don't upset them, Um, you know, be careful what you're saying and how you're saying it, because you're naturally going to protect people. That that leads me on, actually, um, quite nicely to to something else I wanted to talk about. Um, So... Like I was saying at the beginning of the conversation, one of the aims of the podcast is to encourage conversations around death and dying and planning for the future. You've touched on this a bit, Diana, but I wonder if you think about your own death and whether you've had conversations with your family about that and about what you might want. I am very fortunate in that I've got these two sons Mm-hmm. And I've just told you all these grand, uh, grown-up grandchildren as well. And it is something that I've talked about many times. Mm-hmm. We are totally open in our conversation. Um, I've said uh, what I would like to have happen. Um, if I'm going to have dementia or something, I, I've told them what they can do. Um, the very different circumstances, scenarios that you know only too well in uh, Marie Curie, we have spoken openly and uh, they have my full permission to do what they all, they're all lovely people, that they all consider themselves could be done for, 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 for me, definitely. Um, I have a mantra which uh, says, that we should, all of us, live for the day with a cautious eye to the future. And so I want us all to have as good a life as we can do, knowing all the time that there are these other stumbling blocks around the way, but they have permission from me to do what they collectively think is necessary. Mm And how do they take those conversations, Diana, your sons? Are they oh, they tend to smile a bit. <laughs> and they tend to make a bit of a joke of it. But right. they know that mum is actually very serious. And as I say, the three girls in particular, they're all NHS as well. So mm. they're all practically minded. Mm. Uh, I'm very fortunate. You know, I've got these young people. I I think this is one of the the joys of getting older, that if you can still relate to young people, life can remain very, very rich. But if it stops tomorrow, so be it. You know, we talk to families about um, 
you know, having those conversations about death and dying, planning for the future. And, um, and they say, but how, how do we, how do we even start the conversation? You know, we're not going to, we're not going to bring it up when we're all sat around the dinner table. This is for anyone who's listening as well today. You know, I would certainly when my dad was dying and I was having conversations with him, when I grew up, my mother was very open about having those conversations. And I think that was because of her experience of her father's death when she was a child. So I think if you've experienced it at a young age, maybe, um, you know, you, I mean, it could go either way, but you might want to do something differently and actually have the conversations. But, um, you know, with my dad, it was, it was, you know, starting with things like, well, is there anything on a practical level you want to sort out? So, you know, like updating your will or, do you have any thoughts or wishes around your funeral? And they can be good openers, you know, they're not easy things to say. And I, th- I say to people, just be brave and just go for it. And then the conversation might lead from there. Well, you've noticed that um, I'm a painter. I'm an avid painter. Yes, I've, I've painted about a hundred paintings through COVID. I mean, that was the yes. upside for me. I've had time during COVID to paint a bit more. So yes. the pictures have often been the opening point. And one of the boys will say, oh, mom, I love that picture. Or one of the granddaughters will say, oh, Gigi, can I have that picture? And that's often been an opener for me. Mm-hmm. And then we go from the triviality of a picture hanging on a wall to other important things. Um, what if this scenario happens or that scenario? And they know that I've made wills. They're informed about all of it. There are no secrets. Who wants secrets? Mm. I've planned my funeral and I've planned my wake. Oh, have you? Planned the music. <laughs> yeah, that's good because some people will do bits of it. I know for myself, I've, I've put into my will, um, you know, what, what kind of funeral I want and that I want to be cremated and I don't want to be buried. Um, but, but haven't got as far as music, but I think about it. I do think about that. Just a couple of um, other questions, Diana, before Oh, no problem. Um, one is... Um, How would you like to be remembered when you die? I'd like to be remembered as somebody who was very approachable, somebody who had quite a sense of humour, somebody who was definitely hands-on, not just words, but hands-on. The granddaughters in particular have often said, Gigi, you're like a sister to us. We don't really think of you as a grandmother. And that I like. Yeah. I share enthusiasm. I, I am an enthusiastic person. And I want to be involved with what they're doing at that moment. Um, so I would like to think that that's part of my legacy. But I'd also like to think that because of the work that you perhaps know me for and the general public know me for, my mantra when I was working with the BBC and I've been in the wellness business for over 40 years now was get Britain fit. Now, 
I think at the beginning, I certainly was doing that with my workouts and my advice about eating and all that sort of thing. But I have to be honest, in the last, I don't know, five, six years, when I look around at Joe Public, I wonder quite what went wrong because there are so many people who are not necessarily ill, but are doing the wrong thing. And the result is that they are many of them overweight and not fit as they should be. And that rather disappoints me. And what we know as well, you know, we know that exercise is good for our mental health. And then you get that kind of cycle if you, you know, if life's difficult and you're suffering and, um, you know, your mental health is affected and impacted, then getting out to exercise can be just one of the biggest challenges. It's a really important message, isn't it? You know, to get out there. It's not just about physical health. It's about mental well-being. My final question, Dana, is um, what has it meant to you today to come onto the Marie Curie couch? I've been delighted to join you on the Marie Curie couch today because I admire the work you do enormously. I've told you before, I chatter to everybody and I hear of families who have had the benefit of your nurses and your expertise. And if there's anything that I can do that can help, then I'm certainly very, very willing and ready to do so. And we're incredibly grateful for that as well, Diana. And I, I just want to end by, you know, saying thank you uh, for joining me on the couch. Thank you for sharing some of Maisie's story. And um, yeah, thanks for just being Oh, wouldn't she be guest. thrilled? Wouldn't <laughs> she be thrilled to know that we've mentioned her and... And here we are all those years later, and it means so much. Oh, you make me quite emotional. <laughs> oh. That's lovely. Thank you. You know, you've just, you've just reminded me as well, I think kind of, you know, d- doing, these, doing this podcast and having these conversations, I just get, I, I, and, 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 and I mean this in a very authentic way, Diana, you know, I, I do get a, I just do get a real sense of your mum. And, and it's lovely to have these conversations because for me, um, we, we, we bring that person into this room, albeit a virtual room, but, but we do that, you know, and so, um, yeah. It's so lovely that we're putting this into words because I have done this ever since I lost her. And my grandchildren hear me talking about Maisie. The boys hear me talking about, friends hear me, hear me talking about her. So although it was only a short time we were all together, by golly, she had an influence on us all. And she was a dainty little person, not a great giant like me. <laughs> you mean a goddess. Ah. <laughs> 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 So that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie's here to help from planning ahead to coping with bereavement. You can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which also includes specially trained nurses. 
call us on 0800 090 2309 or search Marie Curie online. This podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Sound and Vision. The music featured is Time Lapse by Pan Oceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.